From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, May 27th. Today, I'm joined by our roundtable regulars to discuss institutional impact and public policy, or rather, the limits thereof. Imogen Rose-Smith is an Impact Alpha contributing editor. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And David Bank is Impact Alpha's editor and CEO. Hi, David. Hello to both of you. Looking forward to our conversation. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in impact investing. Some impact investment sectors are defying the market shakeout. Uncorrelated returns was an underappreciated advantage of many impact sectors during the long bull market in stocks. As the S&P 500 hovers near bear market territory, steady returns, even if modest, look attractive. Investors in microfinance, affordable housing, community development, and other sectors with stable businesses and real revenues are prepared to weather any downturn. Impact Alpha checked in with nearly a dozen investors who are going impact on. Agents of Impact stirred the pot at this week's World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. My hypothesis was that we were going to get here to Davos and it wasn't going to be a goddamn thing that we heard that was a better plan than our plan. And what I have learned over the past week is that hypothesis was correct. That was Block Power's Donald Baird, who is signing up cities around the world to decarbonize their building stock. Check out Rudy Sinatis' full Davos update from the Block Power team on your podcast app or in the brief. Shareholders put their power to the test with votes at ExxonMobil, Chevron, BlackRock, and McDonald's. The most far-reaching climate proposals fell short, but at Chevron, 98% of investors voted for a resolution asking the company to report on its methane measurement. Meanwhile, at Meta, formerly known as Facebook, just 3% of shareholders voted for shareholder commons request for a report on the external costs of misinformation. In deals, Lightrock raised $300 million for impact tech in Latin America. The new fund of the London-based private equity investor is anchored by its sister organization, LGT Group, the investment arm of Liechtenstein's royal family. India's M Auto raised $20 million to manufacture two- and three-wheel electric vehicles and build out its network of battery-swapping stations. And be sure not to miss the Agents of Impact call next Wednesday, which is June 1st, which will look at fintech and crypto startups in Africa that are surviving this market shakeout by focusing on loans for productive uses that enhance revenues and livelihoods. Now it's time for our featured conversation, and I'm joined once again by Imogen and David. Imogen, you write a regular column for Impact Alpha called Institutional Impact, where you explore the ways that large asset owners can wield influence on social and environmental issues via their investments. But with recent headlines, the leaked Supreme Court decision likely overturning Roe v. Wade, along with the string of horrific and tragic mass shootings at a Buffalo grocery store, a California church, and a Texas elementary school, are we seeing the limits to the influence of institutional investors in affecting public policy? Look, I mean, I think that, you know, to a man with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, right? So there is this tendency for us to think that institutional investors can be the solution to a whole myriad of problems and you know to a certain extent that just isn't true 
if they could be, for example, hopefully we would be much further along in resolving climate change than we currently are. Um, and I think that additionally, because institutional investors, like it or not, are political animals, right? Public pension plans in particular are by definition political. University endowments exist in a political milieu and foundations have their own sort of agendas. There's this desire to see them, you know, despite the limits of their fiduciary duty, have a policy response. And so that's where you get sort of a lot of particularly the divestment campaigns. But if you look at something like what's happening with, you know, the situation with guns in this country, it's not it's not an investor problem, right? We saw this, you know, a decade ago when Sandy Hook happened, there was this reaction, you know, Calsters in particular tried to divest from firearm manufacturers, and it turned out that, like at the time, you know, Cerberus, which is a private equity firm, was the largest holder of firearms manufacturers, and Calsters held Cerberus, and there was basically nothing they could do. Most man, like, Most gun manufacturers today are either privately held or small cap companies that there's no, there's not really much that these large investors can do. Um, you might see people do things like, you know, com- campaign against Walmart for stocking bullets and stuff like that. But it's, it's not, you know, these are public policy problems. They're not really investment problems. David, where do you see, what are the levers that institutional investors and other investors are able to pull if they want to have an impact on these kinds of issues? Well, just to Imogen's point about, you know, hammers and nails, you know, as, as an editor, you know, you, you, there's no topic that you, you don't want to sound off on. And this one is particularly, you know, emotional for a lot of people, including myself. And I'll just say as a parent, I think people are wanting to do something and find some way to come together around a way to stop these things. And so I would say that the way to think about it is as a systemic risk. Like we talk about climate as a systemic risk and we talk about income inequality as a systemic risk. Um, Gun violence now is a systemic risk. Uh, to you know the economy and and to investors. I mean, there's you know all kinds of economic implications of the fact that we've had you know close to 300 mass shootings this year. Whether it's you know tourists who don't want to come here or you know lost uh, business in in the in the business district of Buffalo where that where that supermarket is still shut down um, uh, after that shooting. I mean, you can you can make the case that I, there's. I in, see the case death- that, that you're making, and I can see that case, and I made that case in my recent column when it comes to the denial of access to abortion, right? Um, and but I can see how, yes, on a community basis, there is an economic implication to mass shootings, and there there is a collective trauma that comes from that. But I, I haven't seen any research that has, and you know, that very well very well may be there. But I haven't seen any research that speaks to sort of what the impact of greater gun violence has on say the american economy well that's an that's an empirical question and i'm sure there is researchers that are that are looking into that i would say that you could think about things that investors might do for example on misinformation the the buffalo shooter as as i think is well known was motivated by you know some racist ideologies that have been given great airplay on you know, one of the major, you know, uh, uh, cable news channels, let's just say. And there's uh, a shareholder resolution actually up this year 
to for 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 that corporation to look at what the effect of their misinformation may be on the on the on the economy and on broader um, investment portfolios that came up in the vaccine case and it comes up again in in the gun case um, and that, so- that I strongly agree with right I think that you know ESG investors and impact investors even more so have historically had a huge blind spot when it comes to you know big tech and misinformation and that we don't spend enough time talking about that or thinking about that or thinking about what the role of investors should and might be in preventing that and also additionally what regulatory risk might be there. So I think thinking about misinformation and sort of how how we are sort of fracturing and warping society is really important. But again, very sadly, I still think it's hard for, you know, the largest institutional investors to get their heads around the fact that Okay, this is this is somehow my responsibility, right? Silent risk makes sense. This is much more amorphous and, and, and much harder, even as we all see sort of, you know, the tragedies every day almost now on TV. I I agree it's hard for them to get their head around it, which is why I think it's incumbent on on us and others to find a way to get our heads around it. And and like for example, you know, you could argue that the fact that, you know, a vast majority of Americans favor sort of common sense gun laws, you know, background checks and all the rest, yet our politicians are not able to even get a vote on the question, you know, is another example of a sort of systemic risk, you know, of the democracy that has an absolute long-term effect on the investment climate. And so um, it's but not it's, the institutional I mean, investor's responsibility to solve the problem, but it's certainly within their analysis of what the long-term uh, health of their portfolios are to think about the health of the democracy, to think about um, rational public policy and all kinds of things that may, you know may have historically been outside the realm of of, of, well, of and, and arguably, that, which are clearly, which clearly bear on the risks. And so, arguably, the responsibility there sort of almost falls on the rating agencies, right? I mean, I'm always struck by the fact that you know a couple of years ago, Moody said that you know the U.S. was at risk for a downgrade because of income inequality in the country. You've got to think that at a certain point, the ratings agencies are going to turn around and say, you know, the U.S. is at risk of a downgrade because of like overwhelming political dysfunction, right? Like how long? How long can, you know, how how long can can things continue as they are? But I I think that that gets back, though, to what are the levers that institutional investors can actually pull? And I think we've we've, you know, done an inventory of some of them. The wrong question, though. I mean, again, to to risk risk of alienating everyone. Right. Like what are the levers that are their responsibility to pull? Right. I mean, I think this is where you get into the fiduciary duty question. Right. Like I'm an investment officer and I show up at work and like everything that's happened is really tragic. But like not only is it like not my job to fix it, it's not I arguably my job to even think about fixing it. I just have to go out and make a bunch of investments. Right. You're asking an awful lot of me to expect me to be the person to solve for our society, even if you want to argue, as Dave is trying to argue, that there are long term systemic risks that come with that. Well, I would just say that 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 is sort of the first step to take, which is to think beyond the particular 
trades and the particular, you know, investments in particular issues and get to your broader role, as you said, your fiduciary role to think about the long term. No, my fiduciary duty is just to make the best investments I possibly can. It's not to think about like, like, I, I, I. Right, but. The, the the best investments with a uh, a true understanding of the the risk uh, to those investments, including the broader. Uh, but it's just a, it's a prudent manual. I I, I kind but, but, of but, resent the idea that like everything falls on. It's like you know, ESG and impact people learned the phrase fiduciary duty and then just decided to pile on and call everything fiduciary duty. Right? Like it's not all my fiduciary duty. I'm just just here doing a job. Well, but you, you've been very articulate over time that, you know, for example, pension fund managers need to think long term because they have pension fund liabilities that have to play out over 30, 40 or 50 years. And so therefore, they think long term, therefore, climate becomes part of their fiduciary duty because it's going to undermine the rest of their portfolio. And therefore, that's going to, you know, limit their ability to pay out their pensions. And the question is, are these other social issues you mentioned income inequality but also just a sort of broader dysfunction of the democracy or 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 even liter- literally gun violence you know in the schools and, and in the streets something that's going to undermine their ability to pay their pensions i mean then they can start to think about well what levers would they pull to to preserve those pensions and and is is a i mean it, it, what levers are there is the you know engaging with the management of these companies uh, and voting proxies uh, during the proxy season of uh, large publicly listed companies. Um, but then there's also the kind of encouraging the companies that they invest in uh, to not uh, provide political contributions to politicians who maybe uh, uh, you know I- are, are anti-democratic and uh, anti-little uh, d democratic in, in some sense, right? I strongly agree with that. And I think that one of the problems we have here is, again, sort of post the Citizens United Supreme Court decision that happened basically a decade ago that allowed unlimited spending in political campaigns, basically, and made it very difficult to identify where a lot of that money is coming from. I don't think we talk enough about how much that is responsible for undermining our democracy. And I do think that you could make a solid case that investors need to do more to push back against companies making political donations. But the problem is most of the, a lot of these particularly large investors are ultimately controlled by politicians who aren't particularly interested in getting money at campaign money at like they don't want they don't want less money in campaign campaigns. Arguably they want more, right? Which is not to say they're sitting there like, you know, rubbing their hands and being like, hey, bring it on. But like institutions are not really set up to are not incentivized to have that conversation even though well, it is a conversation that needs to happen i hate to do this to you imogen but you kind of uh, set yourself up for it which is your recent column actually drew a line between the lack of diversity in asset management and the expected supreme court decision um uh overturning roe v Wade. Um, so you were the one making the connection between the uh, institutional investment uh, world and and public policy, no? Sure, but I wasn't making a fiduciary argument, right? My point was, is that we have failed to economically and politically, and the two are connected, empower women in society. Um, and as a result, one of the things that we see is a disequal political landscape 
that allows, and obviously there are women who are sort of anti-abortion as well, right? It's not just a sort of male versus female debate, but you've created this asymmetrical landscape that has led to a political climate in states like Texas that think it's okay to put through abortion laws that are so extreme, it basically, you know, criminalizes, you know, miscarriages and contraception. And and that that is a political milieu that has been created in part because we have not empowered women and particularly women of color and other un- underrepresented minorities. And the asset management industry is a contributor to that when you look at who controls the true money and power in asset management, and it's still predominantly white men in their, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Well, I completely agree with that. And I would just say that if you take that same argument more broadly, and you say that a kind of failure of collective action and and sort of common purpose, you know, and you saw it in the Buffalo shootings, as, as we discussed, and I think, you know, at some level, you even see it in in the Texas shooting, although we don't know that as much about it, but a kind of um, sense of, you know, we're all in it together, as, as people said at the beginning of the pandemic, turned out not really to be true. Um, but uh, but but the, there was a sense that we could, you know, sort of, you know, band together, you know, overcome adversity. I think, you know, the fantasy on the climate is that we would do the same thing. It would be a kind of World War II type mobilization, and we would use that kind of civic uh, spirit to, you know, then, you know, re-knit our fabric of our society together and all that kind of stuff that has not happened. And that in fact would be, would, if it did happen, would be a much more vibrant and healthy investment environment. So, um, I think you just take your argument, sort of spin it more broadly and you, and you, and you get to a lot of these systemic issues we're talking about. And I think the other point, part of this, and I think maybe where they tie in as well, is this idea of tokenism, right? So I also talk in the column about the sort of emerging managed programs, and which are basically programs that are designed to invest in typically smaller firms, investment management firms that are founded and run by women and underrepresented minorities. Um, and typically they are mandated by state legislature or sometimes a board if it's a foundation. Um, and there's a role for them, and in some ways they're really important, but a lot of the times they end up kind of being tokenism, right? They have not transformed the landscape of asset management. They may have been helped a few people succeed, but overall, and they may have drawn attention to the issues, and that in and of itself is important, but they have not had this transformative role that they were meant to have. And often it becomes, oh, well, we have this emerging manager program over here, and so we're just going to, and then we're going to put the rest of our money with you know, Apollo, um, or BlackRock, or Blackstone, you know, and so we're not solving the deeper systemic problems. Instead, we're just coming up with this little thing that we can do on the side. And the same with, you know, gun violence, if you talk about like, okay, so say, let's divest from Walmart, because they supply gun, they supply bullets. Like, it's not, I think, Calster's in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook, tried to divest from firearms, you know, didn't have an impact, right? So, like, when we when we have the when we have these come do, do these things that are meant to sort of make us feel good, but they don't achieve systemic change, like, often not only are we not doing very much, we can in fact be enforcing the status quo. 
And and I guess that's a good point to, to end on is when can these efforts be not only not uh, successful, but also counterproductive? Well, it's tough, right? Because you can also say, look, I understand people just want to do something, right? And that it feels futile and that like, we don't just like, like, what do you, I think everyone's just kind of like, no one knows any longer what to do, right? And so I understand just making some gesture, trying to do something to at least acknowledge that like this is an untenable situation and this this is awful even if like individually or even collectively we we feel stymied in our abilities to act so to your point to your to your analogy of uh with you when you have a hammer every problem looks like a nail uh when you have that hammer you want to use that hammer and sometimes the only thing you do is just pound the wall uh, and, and not have an impact, but it just to uh, kind of release that that frustration and that anger uh, that you have to do something with your hammer. I, I, I would, you know, at the risk of being that 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 symbolic uh, person in in this conversation, um, I would say that there is something about a social norm setting role that is obviously not only investors' responsibility and 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 not primarily, and it's primarily our our leadership. Um, in in the political sense uh, to to set this, but it's also all of our responsibility. So, so as investors, as journalists, as as just citizens, and I don't think that we've even tried that, much less see, seen it not well, seen it seen it fail. So I would say that it, that we could we could do a lot more on sort of um, knit, knitting back together the fractured society and and see whether that works before we declare that a non-starter. No, and I, I actually do think that's the answer. I think the question is, how do you do that? And it seems like over the last 20 years, we've gone the other other way, right? And it's the public square has become more fractious, more you know aggressive and more violent. And social media has contributed to that. And we don't, you know, we don't talk enough about how do we, how do we be kind to one another, right? Like, how do we use these tools for good instead of destroying each other? And And what was it, what is it? about social media in particular that makes these things so broken. And that's kind of what I was speaking to, talking about before. Like we're not asking the tough questions that we need to ask ourselves or coming up with good answers. More kindness is probably a good way to end it. Uh, more kindness is, is something that we could all use uh, increasingly these days. So thank you very much, Imogen Rose Smith. Thank you. And thank you, David Bank. Thank you, Brian, and thank you, Imogen. That's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. Thanks to Imogen and David and to our producer, Isaac Silk. Subscribe now to get full access to Impact Alpha and the Daily Brief. Right now, we're offering podcast listeners $100 off their first year subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. I'm Brian Walsh, head of sustainability for the capital markets firm TPI Cap. Until next time, take good care.